just a reminder that we have the Chafer Conference coming up in just a little bit less than a month. And since February is a short month, it's uh, almost four weeks. It'll be four weeks from next Monday. And then I will be leaving for Kiev also uh, next week on Wednesday. And so there'll be Tommy Ice will be here the first week, and then there's some other things coming after that, which uh, we'll let you know about. But class will go on as as normal, uh, normal schedule. Won't be any any uh, changes. I think that is the only only uh, short term announcement. We have our church picnic on April April fifteenth, so just have that on your calendar to make work arrangements or plan your schedules accordingly. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. This gives everyone the opportunity to adjust to the righteousness of God. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can never lose your salvation, no matter what sins you commit. But any sin, whether we know it or not, uh, separates us from fellowship with God, from enjoying the close rapport that we have of walking by the Spirit. So when we confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God, then instantly we're forgiven of the sins we remember and we admit. But God in his grace also cleanses us from all sin. And we're restored to fellowship, recover that walk by the Spirit, which is essential to spiritual growth. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure they are spiritually prepared. And then I will... I will open open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very grateful we have you to come to, that you are a refuge, you're a strength, you're a fortress, you are our hope, you are everything. You have provided everything, you have given us everything. And Father, we are too often lax. We think we can do it on our own. We try to do it the wrong way. And yet, you always meet us with grace and forgiveness when we come and confess sin. Father, we're thankful for all the many ways in which you provide for us. And as we come together on this night where we have had prayer meeting, we continue to pray for our missionaries. We pray for Chafer Seminary especially in their search for a, pa- for a president. And for the financial resources necessary, we pray for a minimum of $20,000 or $30,000 increase. And we pray that we might have much more than that to be able to carry us into the future. We also pray for students. We pray for opportunities to minister to churches. And, Father, we're thankful for the many ways that you have provided for that, that ministry in the past year. We look forward to the Chafer Conference coming up and pray for all those who are traveling that you will watch over them, and we're looking forward to that time of spiritual fellowship as well as encouragement and strengthening of our faith. Now, Father, tonight as we study your word, may we be reminded of who you are 
and how we are to react and respond to the circumstances of life and strengthen us in our own faith, focusing on the hope that we have in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in another psalm. I love this section of going through First uh, Samuel because there are so many psalms. And the reason for that is that David is going through a, an incredibly difficult time because he's being persecuted. He's being uh, sought after by Saul. Saul is attempting to take his life. And as we have gone through these psalms, we see these themes uh, again and again. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 56. We looked at Psalm 52, and tonight we're going to be in Psalm 57. Psalm 57, which relates to uh, 1 Samuel 22.1, where it talks about the fact that David took refuge in the cave of Adullam. There are actually two psalms that come out of this period when he is uh, hiding in the cave of, uh, of Adullam. And it's interesting, he has sought refuge in this cave. If any of you have ever had the opportunity to be caught in a storm of any kind where you've had to seek refuge in a cave, then that gives a fitting image. And so with that background that he is seeking refuge there from Saul and Saul's armies and his enemies who are seeking to take his life, he focuses very much on God as our refuge which is to be a constant reality for us as believers, that when we walk with him and as we trust him, in fact, that's how the word gets translated in the New King James Version is trust. But it, it, the word, as we'll see, really focuses on refuge, taking refuge, hiding in the power uh, and provision of God. So uh, we start off looking at this psalm, the opening verse in the Hebrew is the superscript, just gives notes for uh, worship that's written to the chief musician, that it is set to a specific tune called Do Not Destroy, which has been used to, for other, uh, other uh, psalms as well. For example, uh, Psalm 58 and Psalm 59 are both uh, set to this uh, particular hymn, and there are others uh, as well, so this was a popular tune, and that's true today. That if you look at your hymnal, there are certain tunes that are popular, and different hymns, different words, different lyrics, different poems are set to those particular uh, 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 tunes, and so that makes it easy for people people to learn. Uh, this is called a miktam, which was a type of uh, psalm. Uh, of David uh, when he fled from Saul into the cave. So that's basically all that we know about it. And uh, most scholars who are conservative, biblicists, believe that this relates to his time in the, uh, uh, at the cave of, of Adullam. Uh, we learn from this opening that it's a psalm of David. David wrote this psalm as he did many of the psalms and not all of them have his um, uh, have an, a connection with a historical event, uh, but this one does, and it is very similar to Psalm Psalm fifty six, as well as uh, Psalm fifty two, and these other psalms that are written at this particular time. We just finished Psalm fifty two uh, last week, and before that, Psalm fifty six. 
where David is crying out to God, and we've learned that this is a lament psalm, that that's how it's classified by modern scholars. And it's a psalm where uh, the writer is crying out to God in order to rescue him from danger. And that's something we can all relate to because our dangers may not be a, a hit squad coming after us where we have a price on our head and so uh, the king or the government is trying to kill us. Uh, we may have other uh, calamities, as the New King James translates it, other disasters, other problems, other adversities in life. But the principles, no matter what the adversity is, the principles for surviving and having stability are, are, are the same. So uh, as we look at this, we see there's a number of similarities between Psalm 57 and Psalm 56. And actually, as I mentioned, uh, both with Psalm 52 and Psalm 56, there is a grouping of psalms that goes from Psalm 52 uh, through Psalm uh, 61 that have very close themes, and they share similar uh, similar vocabulary. And so this, these are, uh, I believe, under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, they were organized together. Uh, in this section of of the Psalms. Uh, One of the same things that we'll notice in Psalm 57, we'll learn a little new vocabulary word called uh, 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 epizuxis. Okay, how many people know what that is right off the top of your head? Okay, an epizuxis, that's the technical term for it. It just means a repetition of words, and, and that comes across as we, uh, as we look at the text. But one of the things that you should note in reading your Bible is whenever you see a repetition of words, you ought to circle the words uh, because they're not there just because the writer didn't have a synonym to go for, but because... Uh, he's emphasizing something. There's something he wants us to pay attention to, and God the Holy Spirit is behind that. So that gives us some basic information about this particular about this particular psalm. Uh, the basic outline, the basic structure of the psalm is pretty simple. It's divided between uh, verses um, uh, six and seven. And this is uh, verse up through verse six, talking about the problem, the difficulty that he faces, and and what he's going to do in turning to God to rescue him and to be his refuge. And then, as he does that, it so happens so many times in our own personal experience, as well as in the Psalms that we read, uh, as his focus shifts to God. For example, in verse 5, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above the, the, the earth. At that point, he's starting to, to shift his focus to God. And once we measure and compare our, um, our problems, our difficulties, the adversity, whatever the, is going on in our life, once we start comparing that with the power of God, the care of God, the mercy of God, all of a sudden, our problems shrink in significance, and uh, God becomes uh, overwhelming. He is the one who uh, takes care of things. And so as a result of that, starting in verse 7, we see a shift from a focus on the problem to praise to God for the solution, where he says, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. 
I will sing and give praise. So he begins to praise God. And we learn what praise is here. That praise isn't in the scripture isn't what we often hear today as a praise songs. They are, it's, it's much, it has much more content and the praise grows out of doctrinal understanding. It's not just uh, reducing this to two or three lines or two or three, two or three words. So, as we look at this, we recognize that David feels trapped. He feels hemmed in, surrounded by Saul and his enemies. And in that context, he's going to cry out to God to rescue him and sustain him in this time of crisis. We have seen in previous study in Samuel that uh, he left the camp of Gibeah of Saul and went to Nob, which was the uh, dwelling place for the priests who took care of the temple. It's uh, about four miles between Nob and Gibeah. And then uh, there he is provided for by uh, uh, Ahimelech, and he takes the bread that was to be served to the priest, but uh, because of his uh, need, he's given bread, and so that sustains them. And he just, he has to hide from Saul, so he had to get headed to Gath. And we looked at the Psalms related to uh, the problems at Gath and his God, the way God rescued him. And then uh, he heads back east to the cave at Adullam. Uh, and from there, he'll head across to the other side to Moab and then come back to the forest of Hereth. So all of this is in the territory of Judah, which is, of course, uh, his tribe. And we see that he's not that far uh, from Bethlehem. He's probably 10, 12 miles uh, from Bethlehem. So this is territory that he knows and that he is, that he is very comfortable with. So he, in his prayer, this psalm, he uh, cries out to God to rescue him, and he expresses his confidence. And that's something that goes with faith. It's a real confidence in God. And I find that, that a lot of times we don't turn to God to sustain us in difficult times because we're not always that confident in God. That's why it takes time to build or strengthen our faith as we grow and as we mature in the spiritual life. Another thing we we learn here is that the growing believer has to learn to cry out to God for help in the midst of life's difficulties. And I've always found it kind of odd. I'll talk to people and say, well, you know, I'm going through this, but I just didn't want to bother God with it. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. God wants us to bother him with our hangnails, every little thing. That's not called whining when you're talking to God, okay? Uh, that is called taking your prayer requests before him. So this psalm takes place at the time that David has uh, escaped to the cave of Adullam. He's seeking refuge in the cave of Adullam, uh, which presents a metaphor for his refuge in, in God. And others are coming to David there as well, also seeking uh, seeking refuge. So he begins with a cry to God that ought to be somewhat reminiscent to us, and he cries to God to be merciful. And the first verse reads, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. So have you spotted the uh, epizuxis here? Epizuxis means repetition of words for emphasis. What is repeated? Be merciful. Be merciful. 
So that's to bring our attention to uh, what David is crying here and putting that emphasis at the very beginning on God's grace. That when we come to God in prayer, we don't deserve anything. It's, it's recognizing that, that we're totally dependent upon the grace and the mercy of God. Grace is God's undeserved favor, his unmerited kindness. We don't do anything for it. We don't deserve God to help us at all. Christ, because we're in Christ, is a different story. But our basis for God's grace to us is God's character. It's not our character. It's never based on anything that we do. And, of course, David in the Old Testament wasn't in Christ, and so he doesn't have that as a basis. And so he's crying out, in a sense, even his cry out to God's mercy is even greater. He cries out, um, be merciful to me. And this is an imperative mood. But an imperative in a prayer is called an imperative of request. It's not the imperative of a command. And that's something that those who don't understand language have perverted. And you have a whole heretical movement that grew up in the charismatic movement called the name it and claim it movement. And they have said that if you really trust God, you tell God what to do. And you basically uh, tell God, you, you name it and claim it. God will do all this stuff for you because he wants you to assert yourself. And it just goes on into a lot of heresy. And one of the things, reasons they do that is a misunderstanding of imperatives. Uh, if you were going to beg before a king for to do something to intercede on your behalf, you would still use an imperative mood. It's not a command. Imperative is not the barking of a or is not to be restricted to the barking of a drill sergeant. It's also a plead, uh, a plea with to someone to take care of you and provide for you. And so it's called an imperative of request. So David is crying out to God to be merciful to him, to treat him in kindness and undeserved favor. So whenever we think of mercy and we ever think of grace, we've, we've gone through, we've taught, we've learned for many, many years the various spiritual skills that are important to, to spiritual growth. So when you hear mercy, what category of spiritual skill comes to mind? Grace orientation. To be grace-oriented means that we go to God continuously to plead with him to intervene in our lives and to rescue us from negative circumstances and problems. Now, sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says you're going to be there because it's teaching you to walk with me and to trust me. But other times he changes those circumstances or he gives us the means to endure through the those particular uh, circumstances. So this is a recognition of using that spiritual skill, and it's an illustration of using that spiritual skill in the Christian life, calling upon God to deal with us in undeserved kindness, uh, recognizing that we don't deserve it. So under grace orientation, we recognize that never in any area of life, whether it's salvation or whether it's the spiritual life, whether it's facing problems or, or whatever the circumstances, we never bring anything to the table that impresses God. We don't negotiate with God. We don't come to God with a bargaining chip and say, okay, because I've got this and I've done that and I've served you here, 
then you should do this. The only bargaining chip that we have are the promises that God has made to us where he has committed himself to a certain course of action on the basis of this promise. And so we need to know the promises of God in order to uh, claim them. Uh, When we define grace, we often speak of it as uh, unmerited favor or undeserved kindness. Mercy is related to grace in that it is grace applied or grace in action. So David is crying out to God as he is being uh, hunted, as he is being uh, 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 assaulted by by Saul's troops, as he has been hemmed in. Uh, He goes to God to rescue him, even though he doesn't deserve uh, such a favor. In the same way, when we're facing circumstances and situations, it may be a situation at work. I just uh, recently heard of someone who listens regularly that that at their workplace, they're coming under assault, like I've talked about the last few weeks, from someone due to sins of the tongue, gossip, slander, maligning, things like that. And this is one example where we have to turn to God. We have to take it to the judge, to um, to the Supreme Court of Heaven, take it to God uh, uh, to appeal to His justice and His mercy to intervene in that particular situation. It may be a circumstance with a family member. It may be a circumstance with with a friend. It may be a circumstance with with just employment. It may be the reality of not having a job. It may be the difficulties that we face uh, because of a poor economy. And even though things are generally good in Houston, there are a tremendous number of people who are out of work, who've been employed in the uh, oil business, to you know, oil services, things like that, and they're looking for work of any kind. And so, uh, it can be unemployment. It can be numerous problems. Anything that is a difficulty can be health problems. Uh, and health problems, we turn to the Lord. So a lot of times people say, well, you know, I've got this little problem here, but it's not that big a deal. But if I had cancer, then I would pray. Now, the way we train ourselves to trust God is to go with to God with what we might think of as the small stuff, the petty stuff, the stuff that that doesn't seem to be very big. And as we learn on those baby steps to trust God in the small things, then when more serious things come along, then we have trained ourselves to think in terms of the faith rest drill and, and trusting God. So this is what David is illustrating in many of these and many of these lament psalms is how to trust God. So we'll be looking at that as we go through this. So he starts off and he says, Be merciful to me, O God. And I find it interesting that he doesn't refer to God in this psalm as Yahweh until you get down to verse, um, well, it's not in ver- even in verse 9. Uh, verse 9, it's Adonai. It's uh, not uh, uppercase. It's not a Yahweh. All through here, he's just referring to God as Elohim, which I think when we see that, if he's referring to God as Yahweh, that always brings to mind that he's emphasizing God's covenant relationship with Israel. When Elohim is used in contrast to just Yahweh, then it's focusing on God and more of the of, of God's universal uh, 
universal ministry to all mankind, not just not just the Jewish people. So he addresses God throughout this uh, this psalm as Elohim. And then a third thing that we should note is that he then expresses a rationale for why God should be merciful. One of the things that has impressed me for years, if you study the prayers of Scripture, is that they have thought through what they are asking God to do and why they are asking him to do it and why they often state a, a, a rationale for why God should intervene in their life a certain way. I don't hear too many people pray that way uh, because it calls for a knowledge of doctrine. It calls for a knowledge of scripture. And, it call, and, and too many people think, well, uh, aren't I being presumptuous if I go to God and say, God, you need to intervene in my life this way, and this is the reason, one, two, three, you made this promise here over in this example, you intervened in this situation, and mine's at least that significant, and uh, because of that, you should intervene in my life. We're building a case, and that's that's the kind of thing that he does here. He uses the word for. And in the Hebrew, this is a word that is roughly comparable to the Greek word gar, and it indicates in context the cause. God, why should you be merciful to me? You should be merciful because my soul trusts in you. Now, we have to look at the translation there because I think we lose something the way the New King James translated that. Uh, first of all, we have the use of the word my soul, uh, which is an accurate translation, but often in Scripture that is not talking about the soul as an entity, as it's sort of a circumlocution for talking about oneself. Instead of saying, I trust in you, we're saying my soul trusts in you. And, and this has influenced English a lot down through the years. You don't hear it as much today. But up through at least World War II, when there was a disaster, oftentimes it would be reported as so many souls were lost. And by that they were referring. But in this day of pure materialism, when psychologists tell us that we have no immaterial part, that everything is just the product of of biochemical reactions and people are nothing more than a mass of, of, of chemistry, uh, then you can't talk about a soul because science has proved, uh, so-called, that there's not a soul. But here's an example from the Washington Post. When the Titanic went down, the headline stated, 1,800 souls lost. Okay, that's the idea. So when it's talking about souls, here he's saying, my life, who I am, uh, I am the one who trusts in you. And you find this kind of uh, usage of soul many times uh, in, in the scripture. You find similar terminology to these first two lines in Psalm 56, 1 and 2, where uh, David cries out, be merciful to me, O God. It's the same word, Hanan, be merciful to me, O God. For, and then he gives another explanation. But this time he's saying, for man would uh, swallow me up. Man would squash me as we looked at that in the, uh, in the original. Uh, he, would, he would pressure me and twist me up and, and destroy me. Uh, fighting all day long, he, he oppresses or he stresses me. So that's what, how he expressed it in Psalm 56. 
and he calls upon God. And also, since I have that up on the screen, also in Psalm 56, he is referring to God as Elohim and to uh, God Most High. We'll look at that in just a minute, uh, the significance of uh, God being referred to as El Elyon, O Most High. So the next thing that he says after he uh, pleads with God to be merciful to him, states his reason for the mercy that my soul trusts in you. We have to understand that this isn't a simple word for trust. It's a, it's a more graphic term. It's, it, it brings into a connection, as I mentioned, what he, what he himself is doing by staying in the cave. He is seeking refuge, a place where he is protected from that which surrounds him. So the word there is the word I have on the screen in the lower right side, chasah, which means to seek refuge. And it's actually used twice in this verse. So uh, this is another example of epizuxis. It's it's that repetition of terminology uh, for emphasis. My soul trusts in you or takes refuge in you and in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge. So once again, this is a little uh, pet peeve I have that English trend in English it's not considered good writing if you repeat a key word over and over again. That's considered poor writing. The Holy Spirit, fortunately, did not get a doctorate of literature from any of our Ivy League schools. He didn't learn how to write that way, and he wanted people to pay attention to certain things, so he repeats certain key words over and over again so that we get the point. And it, 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 but the difference between the trust for my soul takes refuge in you in the second line and uh, the verb as it's used in the third line is a difference in tense. The first line is a perfect tense, which uh, should be translated either I have taken refuge in you or it could be used uh, to emphasize the present reality. I am taking refuge in you because that's the position I've taken in the past. So not equivalent to the way the Greeks used a perfect tense, but it would refer to that sort of idea of completed action. I've taken refuge. And then he says, and in the shadow of your wings, and then in the Hebrew uses an imperfect uh, I will make my refuge. Often it's used, the imperfect is used to express the future idea. So he's saying, because I've done this in the past, I have taken refuge in you. I will continue uh, to take refuge in the shadow of your wings. So he's emphasizing that uh, the reason he should that God should intervene is because of the way he has taken refuge. He has sought God as the only solution to his problems and that he is therefore trusting in God and in God alone. And we see this idea of refuge with this particular verb used many times in the Psalms. And some of these are really good promises that, that we should pay attention to. You should underline them in your Bible. You should memorize them. These are promises to claim. And they're often translated, at least in the New King James Version, 
with the word trust, but they're not, uh, for example, we've studied the word batach, which is another key Hebrew word for trust, but this is the word chasah, which means uh, to take refuge. So we have we have verses like Psalm 61.4, I will abide in your tabernacle, and the idea there, the tabernacle means a dwelling place, I will abide in your dwelling place uh, forever, I will take refuge in the shelter of your wings. And also, you should notice, if you read through the Psalms and, and in, highlight some of these things, that often the imagery of a bird is used. That just as a mother bird, whether it's a, a, a hen or some or an eagle, that the mother uh, puts his her wings around the eggs and the young in order to protect them. So this is a a very graphic illustration of how God surrounds us and provides for us and protects us from anything that would uh, bring us harm. So Psalm 61.4, I will take refuge in the shelter of your wings. I'll talk about the metaphor that's used here, the zoomorphism, in just a minute. Psalm 37.40, and the Lord shall help them and deliver them, rescue them. And he shall rescue them from the wicked and save them. Notice the shift in terms there, deliver, uh, wicked, I mean, our deliver, save, because they take refuge in them. So in Psalm 37, 40, we see that picture that of deliverance. That's not justification salvation. That's not spiritual salvation to spend eternity in heaven. That is physical deliverance from a serious situation in this life that God is going to deliver them. Why? Because they take refuge in them. So in Psalm 37, um, you have the same idea that you have here in Psalm 57. Psalm 511, but let all those rejoice who put their trust, and there again, the word isn't batach, it's the word for taking refuge in you. Let them ever shout for joy. Because you defend them, God is our defender. He is our protector. He is the one who uh, we can take refuge in. He surrounds us like a fortress, like a cave. And as we see in Psalm 18:2, he's our rock, he's our fortress, he's our deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will take refuge, literally. I will take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Look, I, I just love that verse. All the terms that are used to express that God is our uh, our fortress. He's our rock, our fortress, our deliverer, our stronghold, our shield, all of these terms that are there. Psalm 1830 restates it in the same psalm. As, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. Now, I want you to notice there's a connection that's brought in a number of these verses where you see a connection between trusting or taking refuge in God and his word. That the reason we, one of the reasons we know we can trust God is because of his promises, because of what we know from what he has revealed to us. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield 
to all who take refuge in him. So we should take refuge in him in every little issue that we face in life. And then in Psalm 118, 8 and 9, just to put a political twist on this, we need to recognize that it's not in government, it's not in the Constitution, it's not in any political leader or any political party that we are to place our confidence. Our confidence is in the Lord. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Because human beings will always disappoint us. Human beings will always fail us to one degree or another at some point or another because we're all sinners. We're all corrupt. We all have sinned, and we will sin, and there'll always be problems. So this is the idea here that we are to, as David states it, our soul is to take refuge, that we are to take refuge in God. And then and then he's going to uh, introduce uh, what God, uh, the protection, the protection from God. And uh, he uses a phrase that is, used frequently in the Psalms, taking refuge in your wings. So God is pictured like a bird, but there's an analogy that's going on here. He's not saying that God is a, is a, a bird or that God has wings. Now, there are creatures that have wings. There are angels, the cherubs and the seraphs have wings. There are other, there are creatures such as birds that have wings but God does not have wings. This is uh, what is called a zoomorphism, a zoomorphism. And that's spelled sort of like it sounds. Here we go with the spelling. It's zoo plus the word morphism, just like we have the word anthropomorphism, where we have man using the form of a human in comparing God to a man. This is comparing uh, God to some attribute in his creation. Now, when we think about these things, where well, we're thinking about an anthropomorphism or whether you're thinking about a zoomorphism, then what you recognize is that when God created an eagle, when God created a hen, when God created mother birds who and built into, encoded into their DNA structure and into their uh, uh, intuition. He encoded this behavior into them that they would use their wings to surround and protect their young because God knows that he's going to use that as an analogy to explain his who he is and uh, his policies and his his procedures. So uh, we can define a zoomorphism as using an, an, an analogy by attributing to God the characteristics of an animal, which he does not actually possess. Now, that's a really important phrase that I use in defining three things, anthropomorphisms, anthropopathisms, and it's really clear when I when we talk about a zoomorphism. Now, some people want to debate the other two a little bit, 
But when we start with a zoomorphism, we know God isn't an animal. Now, that was a pagan conception. I've got a couple of pictures on the slides of Anubis on the, on the left and the Sphinx, which is a human head on the body of a lion uh, on the right. And this was typical in Egyptian uh, mythology. Because in Egyptian mythology and in most paganism, there is a breakdown between the creator and the creature distinction. So that the creator is viewed within what was called historically as the chain of being, that all of all, all the gods and all the, all of creation are basically within this chain of being. And so God is just a bigger version of man. But what we see in Scripture is that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the most high God. He is totally unique. He is uh, Kadash. He is holy. He is unique. He's distinct from his creation. He is not part of the chain of being. He stands over against the chain of being as the unique God who controls all of creation. He's not trapped within the structure of of the universe and and creation. But in paganism, God is brought down and is made finite. He's made like a large human. He's like a superman. He is usually uh, in ancient uh, paganism. He is uh, attributed with many of man's characteristics because the gods are just blown up men. But that's not what we see in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is that God is not an animal. He is a spirit. He does not have animal body parts. He doesn't have human body parts. But he creates man. He creates animals. And he designs them so that later he can use different parts to communicate ideas about himself. So we define this, that uh, it's attributing to God characteristics of an animal, which he does not actually possess in order to say something about his person, his plans, or his policies, because God is different from us, because God is totally other. The only way we can understand him is through analogies, these analogies that God builds into creation so that we can come to understand on a finite level something about his person, his plans, and his policies. In comparison to anthropomorphism as well as anthropopathism, uh, we have to realize that in anthropomorphism, human physical forms such as eyes, the eyes of God go to and fro throughout the whole earth, uh, nose that God, when it, usually we read God is angry, it means God's nose burned. So you have an anthropomorphism, a nose that's ascribed to God, or ears that, that God is listening with his ears, or the breath of God. These are anthropomorphic uh, terms. Uh, also human emotions that God does not actually possess. Now, everybody wants God to be emotional and to be a big, warm, fuzzy teddy bear or something akin to that because we want God to, we want to connect with other people on an emotional level. That is really a 20th century concept. 
uh, and 21st century. And, and people today want to emote. They control their lives. When you've divorced yourself from thought and content and you no longer see within secularism today, there's no longer a solution to life's problems provided by uh, academ- academia, provided by the intellectuals of the world. They're mired in postmodernism where nobody really knows what anybody else is saying or can understand it. They can't deconstruct it. Everybody's trapped within uh, this this uh, cosmos and they can't do anything about it. And everything is relative because everybody's basically functions as their own ultimate reference point. Um, the only thing that seems to validate life is emotion. So we can only connect, we only feel connected with people if we're emoting. And so this is a problem. It's, it's impacted churches. I was listening to people like, uh, like Francis Schaeffer, uh, others who were speaking about this in the 60s and 70s with the beginning of this coming out of the fifties uh, and sixties, and they were I, they were identifying this. There was a, a whole host of of uh, Christian thinkers who were identifying this and warning that this was the direction churches were going, and that's where we are today. You go to ninety five percent of churches in this country on a Sunday morning, and they're emoting with their idol of Jesus. They've created this emotional idea of what God is like and what Jesus is like, and that's what they're worshiping. They have no idea what the Bible says. They, they, they are appalled when they read how Jesus uh, threw the money changers out of the temple, and they're uh, appalled when they read how Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites. This runs counter to their idea of this emotional, warm, fuzzy Jesus. And what they've done is they've created an idol out of their own thinking that fits their value. That's what they need in life because once you reject the intellectual solutions that are available, the only thing you have is emotion. And then when that seems to fall apart, all you can do is react in emotion, which is what we're seeing with a lot of these demonstrations and reactions politically since the election. People no longer seem to have the ability to intellectually and rationally handle disappointment and, and failure. And all they can do is have a pity party or throw a temper tantrum, destroy property, uh, destroy others, and everything becomes a massive, massive hyperbolic problem because you can't think rationally anymore. Emotion has become the God of this generation, and it dominates. And so we want to have a God who's emotional. So God has to have human emotions. Well, God doesn't have human emotions. God is totally distinct. But he uses these emotional terms in order to enable us, just like he does with the physical properties of a man or an animal, to learn something about his person, his plans, and his policies. The Bible also uses a lot of inanimate objects to do the same thing. Uh, God doesn't have animal parts. He's not a composite like Anubis with the uh, the head of, uh, a, 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 of a jackal and the body of a man. 
you have these uh, inanimate terms used of God in Psalm 18.2, which I mentioned a little while ago. God's called a rock. He's called a fortress. He's compared to a shield and a horn and a stronghold. These are inanimate objects, but they're, they're metaphors. They're not saying that God is inanimate. They are analogies to understand certain properties which these inanimate objects have that are true of God. He is a place that, that where we are rescued, where we can find protection against the storms of life. Here's a, um, a diagram or, that comes from the Book of the Dead. Uh, this is the, called the Papyrus of Hunifer, and it shows how the Egyptians uh, created their gods that were part human and part man. You have Anubis, who's seen twice uh, in this uh, painting. He's pictured with the head of a jackal and the body of a man here and here. You have Amit, the devourer, who's got a nose and snout of a crocodile and the head of a lion and the body of a, of a hippopotamus. So they would draw these t together. Then you have Ma'at here, who is uh, a god of the afterlife, and she's also the, or the goddess of the afterlife and goddess who rules over this scale. This is the scale where when you die, your good deeds are put on the scale to balance out your bad deeds, and if you have the right balance, then you're going to go to the better place than the worst place. Okay, so this idea of balancing out your bad with the good didn't come along with, with legalists in the last couple of hundred years. This goes back to, probably goes back to the first person who rejected divine truth it, it, after the garden, which would be Cain, that somehow his good efforts would outweigh uh, his bad. And so he got very angry with Abel when God approved Abel instead of Cain. So this is the um, this is the idea here uh, that that pagans come up with, and they break down that distinction between the creator and the creature. But God uses these analogies in order to uh, teach about His nature as the unique creator, and He uses different elements. and And actually, the root. The historical root of this bird analogy that's used in the Psalms goes back to Psalm, excuse me, goes back to Deuteronomy 32, the very end of the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses is rehearsing how God rescued and protected Israel. And Deuteronomy 32.10, we read, he, referring to God, he found him in a desert land, that's referring to Israel, in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. That's that picture of the bird, the mother bird that's wrapping her wings around the young. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. This is talking about Israel being the pride and joy of the Creator, not as Deuteronomy also says, not because they did anything right, but because God chose to love them for a special reason. And then the analogy, as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him. And there was no foreign God with them. Once again, showing that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is completely 
different from these gods and goddesses uh, of the Egyptians. Some of the other verses where we where we find these the this analogy in Psalm seventeen eight, uh, the psalmist prays, "Keep me as the apple of your eye; hide me under the shadow of your wings." Psalm thirty six: How precious is your chesed, your faithful, loyal love, O God! Therefore, children of men will see something similar to that in Psalm fifty seven, where it talks about men. Uh, uh, children of men put their trust. They seek refuge under the shadow of your wings. Psalm 91, 4, he shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings, you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Notice again, this connection, Psalm 91, 4, between God, who is the protector and that that protection is, is, uh, uh, revealed through his word, through his truth. It is his truth, his revelation, that is our shield and our buckler. He's the one who provides protection for us, and that comes through his word. So we have to learn the word, memorize the word, claim his promises. That's how we realize his his protection. So in just this one verse, we've unpacked a tremendous amount, but the last line tells us something else, that he is going to take refuge until these calamities have passed by, until the circumstances change, until God finally takes Saul out of the way and elevates David uh, to the throne, or in a long-term view, until David is face-to-face uh, with the Lord. The word for calamities is the Hebrew word hava, which has the idea of destruction, uh, disasters, or ruins. So this is something that is totally devastating uh, to a person's life. Now, we have a lot of things we react to as disasters. They're minor things, such as uh, minor car accidents or fender benders or being in a hurry to get somewhere and having to deal with with massive problems on Houston uh, freeways. Uh, we have household problems where uh, we have a pipe that bursts or we have a pipe that gets clogged up and we have uh, house, other household problems that, that we weren't counting on or expecting. Sometimes there are marital arguments. I know it probably never happens to anyone here where you have a disagreement with your spouse, but that does happen to some people. Uh, there's weather caused problems that are relatively minor and uh, that we may have financial reversals or uh, various uh, unexpected uh, financial bills that come in. But then there are the big things. Those are the little things. And when that happens, we learn. To, those are our training wheels. Uh, we learn on them to trust God. And then there's the big things. Uh, we have major health problems. Uh, we have major weather disasters. We lose our job or uh, we're involved in a business that because it's dependent on other businesses that it, it, it dries up. Uh, we see a change of administration. I read the other day that, that for the last eight years, uh, gun stores have had just tremendous business each year better than the year before, that the prices of guns have gone up. The profit margins have gone up. The price of ammo has gone up. And now we have a new president that wants to protect Second Amendment rights and appoint judges to do that. And people are going, 
I can take a breather. I don't need to go buy that gun right now. And that, that January had some of the lowest gun sales in the last eight years. And the same thing, uh, ammunition prices, guns are going on sale. And this just doesn't happen there. It happens across the board. So those gun store owners are suddenly uh, looking at reduced profits and income where they've been doing a banner business for the last eight years. That kind of thing happens in every industry. You have the ebb and flow of economics. And so we have to uh, trust God. These are the ways that we develop and strengthen our faith. So as we wrap up tonight, how do we learn to trust God with the confidence that David has? Well, first of all, we have to know God's word. Uh, we have to read it. We have to study it. We have to think about the events and times when when uh, people trust God in the Bible and what he is able to do for them so that we can draw analogies. It's interesting. David was a shepherd boy. What did he do when he's out there in the fields with the sheep? He is memorizing scripture. He's thinking about scripture. He somehow had scrolls or had copies or something available to him. He had memorized it. Um, and so he used that. Uh, and that strengthened him because he could go to God's word. I was reading the other day about a uh, a brilliant one of the one of the uh, I believe he was uh, 18th century. I may be wrong on the century. 18th century uh, Greek grammarian professor at I believe it was it was either Cambridge or Oxford in England, and his name was John Brown of Haddington. And uh, when he came to apply to go to, I think it was Cambridge, I, I might be wrong. When he came to apply to university, they, sa- they said, you're just an unlearned shepherd boy. What he had done was he got a hold of a Greek text. And while he was out with the sheep with no grammar, he taught himself the Greek alphabet and he taught himself to read and exegete the scripture so that he could pass the entrance exam uh, to university, and he become became one of the great uh, Greek scholars and professors in in England at the time. Uh, see, the only reason we don't achieve great things is we don't try, we don't discipline ourselves, we don't take the time and put the effort in uh, to be able to do it. So we need to take God's word. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to think about it. We need to have journals or notebooks or whatever to write down thoughts. And we need to think in terms of how circumstances, situations, and events that are recorded in the Scripture relate and connect to our own. Second thing we knew, we need to pray about it. We need to pray that God would open our eyes and lighten the eyes of our soul, as Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1, that God would open our eyes to the truth and he would strengthen our faith so that we can apply these things that he has taught us. Third, we need to memorize promises. We need to learn promises. We need to claim promises. We need to practice that. Whenever we get in these situations, we say, now what promise fits this circumstance? And uh, we need to put those things together. And then lastly, we need to practice it on a daily basis. We need to claim the faith rest drill and relax and trust in God because he is our refuge. Now, next time we'll come back and we'll look at verse 2. As David uh, puts this into practice and cries out to God Most High, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thanks for this opportunity to study your word, to reflect upon just this opening verse in this psalm and so much that's there. 
uh, reminding us that we need to call upon your mercy, that you would be merciful to us in our lives, in the struggles we face, uh, the challenges we face, the adversities we face, that we do not deserve your goodness, but we recognize that you willingly uh, grace us out. You bless us with so much. And Father, we call upon you to to uh, bless us and to show your mercy to us because you are our refuge. You're our strong tower. You are our shield and buckler. You are the one who encircles your wings around us to give us that protection. And Father, we pray that as we continue in this psalm that we'll see application in our own lives and our own thinking. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.